Matt Kibbe is the founder of Free the People, an organization with a simple mission to tell stories, but stories with a twist from what you normally see and hear. The heroes in their stories are real people who are building better lives through peaceful cooperation until their liberty is taken away. I'm John Caldera, president of Independence Institute, and this is the audio version of our television show, Devil's Advocate. You can watch that program by going to youtube.com and searching for our channel, IITV, which stands for Independence Institute TV, or just go to thinkfreedom.org. You're gonna like this discussion. A guy I wanted you to meet for a long time. I've known him forever. Never really liked him, but he's a lot of fun. Matt Kibbe with We Free the People. I always want to say We the People. Well, it's it's a riff on that, right? But uh, we want to free the people too, together. So you've you've had this this great life in what we refer to as the freedom movement. I don't know if that's a, the right movement, but you've been inside politics and you've also been inside philosophy and that kind of that education. Why we need to have this? I'll say libertarian philosophy, but also the politics side, working at FreedomWorks and so many other places of trying to get the political side and the educational side. Which one do you like more? So I, I started off wanting to be an academic and I got sucked into politics and now I'm into what I would call communicating in popular culture. Um, I like it all because if you, wanna, if you actually want to understand how the world works, spending a little bit of time in politics is a good thing to do. Don't do it when you're older because it's really depressing and just and despondent for people to constantly be lied to by by people that they thought were good people. Um, but it's all one thing. And I, I sort of realized in my old age that politics can also be like a pop culture event. Like it's the one time when people do pay attention to policy conversations. And it was it was Ron Paul that taught me that. He wasn't I don't think trying to win the presidency, but he wanted to turn on a generation to ideas. And I'm seeing that more and more with these sort of influencer candidates that they have an opportunity to, to plant an idea into the popular culture. And I think that's an interesting thing. In that sense, politics is still interesting to me. Right, so you said a couple things. One, people shouldn't be into politics because it's, it's just so depressing. Help me with that. And I know exactly what you mean. Because when you're younger and when you're still too into politics, you believe in personalities. Yeah. You actually believe that that person is going to make a difference. And you don't realize that the system is broken and that politicians are just movable levers in the system, that the gravitational forces in the system make the personalities not irrelevant but it's the systems that are broken. And until you change those systems, until you change the culture, yeah. as we always say at Independence, you know, politics is the lagging indicator of culture. Yeah. And it's a chicken or egg thing. 100%. And I, um, you know, when you're young and, and idealistic, you, 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 you are prone to like believe in a guy. And, and you think that that guy's unfallible. And I think. And let me say, Captain Kirk. I mean, he is unfallible. He is unfallible, and I would vote for him, or John Galt. If if either of those guys ran for office, I would do that. Um, but you, you're but right. Galt like Galt is fictional. True. Either or of those guys, but I think that the problem, and I've watched this, having having helped a lot of really um, inspiring people get elected over the years, you see the system sort of uh, impose its incentives and, and whip them in line. And it's not just the party, it's not just the administrative state, it's all the incentives aligned to, to, to not do the things you said you were gonna do. A great example of that is, um, I think the last four presidents in a row, and I'll start with uh, George uh, W. Bush. He ran against nation building. He promised to get us out of the wars. He didn't, he did the opposite. Barack Obama, ran against nation building, promised to get us out of the wars. He didn't, he did the opposite and droned a lot of innocent people in the process. Trump, who to his credit, didn't get us in new wars. He promised to get us out of the wars and even, even he wasn't able to get us out, out of Afghanistan, something that he desperately wanted to do. 
So I think there's something to this. You got to give the man credit as loony as he is. He did what the left claimed he wasn't going to do. He didn't get us into a war with Korea. He didn't escalate the wars in the Middle East. He lowered those conflicts, uh, turned them into a trickle, really. it It was really pretty impressive. He does not get the credit he deserves from from all those who thought he was going to blow up the planet. Yep, yep. And I think I think that's a fair assessment. And um, he, if he had not hired certain people like John Bolton, who is a despicable person except for his spectacular mustache, <laughs> um, he probably would have gotten us out of Afghanistan, and he would have done it in a far more rational way than Biden did, which was just a tragic train wreck of a, of a policy. But I, I do think that there's something to what Eisenhower said when he talks about the military industrial complex and, and all of these institutions and incentives that are designed to feed off of Washington and, and feed off of working people. And I think it's a real thing. So unless we go upstream of politics, as you said, and engage people in the culture and not just the, the negative stories about, about government tyranny and and all of the horrible things that happens when people aren't free. But try to turn people on to the beautiful things that happen when people are free to cooperate and innovate and, and help their neighbors out instead of expecting to outsource it to a third party, some suitless bureaucrat in, in Washington, gray-suited, hopefully the suit, not suitless. <laughs> uh, this whiskey's great. Cheers. Strovia. So, so help me with that part. Which is, we suck at this. We suck at this. We who believe in consensual relationships and see the beauty in that, see this whiskey that was made that we enjoy and go, wait a second, free people got together and go, I like whiskey, you like whiskey. And then had to go to the government and say, mother, may I please? And that label for that whiskey had to go all the way to Washington to some bureaucrat who said, no, that that label's not good. And had to come here. I I knew a woman who put together this great margarita company. Uh, Coyote Gold Margaritas, great margarita company. They thought they'd be able to go to market in, in a year. It took them over two years, only because of federal bureaucracy. And we want people to flourish, yeah. and we see government as this thing that stops people from flourishing. Our opponents look at this and go, oh no, it is government that keeps you from being oppressed. And somehow we lose this narrative. Before I ask you, how do we win the narrative? Tell me, why do we lose this narrative? We lose it in Hollywood. We lose it in the media. We lose it in education. We have been losing it since the day FDR took office. I think it's the nature of who we are as as people that believe in freedom, and and we probably understand economic logic, and we believe in data and rational argumentation, and, and that you can sort of come up with rational solutions to public policy problems. Um, and I remember this vividly a couple years ago at a Students for Liberty conference. We had a lot of young people um, pitching their solutions to the healthcare crisis. Every one of them had a spreadsheet and charts and graphs. And when I go speak with my progressive friends, um, I'm part of something called the Civic Collaboratory, and you see such a powerful, emotionally compelling story about a mom who couldn't get what she needed for her daughter. And that's our problem. We don't appreciate that most people process the world through their emotions, not not economic logic. I'm an economist, so it it pains me to admit that I'm the weirdo. Most people don't think about the world that way. So we we should and we can. Um, Maybe it's not natural for first-generation libertarians who read all the books that I read, but second- and third-generation libertarians, young people with incredible artistic talents, we can tell emotionally compelling stories and get to the same conclusion. Can we? Because, how to put this, the problem with the people who bring the emotional stories, right? they, they sell, but they can't do math. They can't do simple math. In the state of Colorado, as we're switching to feel-good energy, 
the simple mathematics is devastating. It will destroy our economy, and those very poor people that, that we care about are going to get crushed. Now, the rich people have feet, and they have money to leave. The poor people are the ones that are going to get hurt. And you can do the simple math and say, you cannot get to where you're going with simple, simple, yeah. simple yeah. mathematics. Yeah. It doesn't work. And every time we try to hold somebody and say, look at the math, and they're like, no, no. I feel like I'm talking to an alcoholic to say, you, you, you have a problem. Or somebody who has a spending issue. And yeah. go, if you keep spending like this, your savings goes down. Uh, and quite literally, when it comes to economic spending, you're spending money you don't have. You're spending your great-great-grandchildren's money that they haven't even been born to earn yet. It's simple math. And so I understand what you're saying about the emotional story, but there's part of that libertarian that goes, doesn't math count? Well, here's the upside to who we are is that facts matter and being right actually matters. Um, Let me give you an example of what we did on this because my frustration, we were talking about this before we went live, my frustration with the last three years and the lockdowns and the mandates and the incredible authoritarian apparatus that that emerged in response to COVID is that it was devastating to people. It was devastating particularly to people at the margins. It was devastating to people that weren't allowed to work, they weren't allowed to speak up, they weren't allowed to leave their homes. And I could have made a rational economic critique, I probably have made a few in the last three years, but what we did instead is we found a family in Brooklyn that was trying to keep the restaurant open. In the middle of trying to keep the restaurant open, they lost their son to a grand mal seizure because he wasn't allowed to go to the hospital because the governor decided that that wasn't a priority. Imagine a governor deciding who gets healthcare and who doesn't. Um, But we, we don't talk about the governor and we don't talk about government policies. We just let this guy tell his emotionally rending story. It's a devastating story. And that film was picked up in various film festivals across New York City. It actually won best COVID film at the New York Shorts Festival. And I guarantee you not a single person on that judge committee was against lockdowns. So it's at least a way to start a conversation about the math behind the lockdowns, about the um, inevitable consequences for people, not the, not the laptop class, not the pajama class that was hiding behind their laptops and just assumed that somehow the market would magically bring Uber Eats to their front door and leave it so they wouldn't have any contact with anybody. But the, but the actual people that were hurt, it's always the same with energy, it's the same with taxes, it's the same with spending. The people at the margins are the people that always get screwed. And, but I think, I think you start the conversation with, by introducing them to a person, not an abstraction, not an equation, but a person that actually paid the price for that. And that's, that's at least a great way to start the conversation. Now, the left does that always. They always start with an individual. Read any article. I think about it in my own life. My son, and you know my son, he, he lost a year, really two years, because of his Down syndrome. Online learning was regressive for him. It was awful. It was torturous. It was downright hateful. Yeah. Because of who he is, uh, the system hated him. And kids like him. Even going to court, we lost. It's like, you know, this, is, this is hateful. Telling that story, people understood it, but we didn't get satisfaction. And after the movie, I wonder, did the family still lost, still lost that, that beautiful child. When do we see something from the stories that free the people, and the films you make, by the way, go to freethepeople.org, and you can see these films, and they're, they're powerful, they're powerful. How long from there to real change? And until Hollywood starts getting those films, until you don't have to make them for film festivals and you're not showing them in small audiences, but they're the films on Netflix instead of the usual, you know, victim films and and 
big government or uh, big government becomes the oppressor instead of capitalism. That's when I know we're going to be on the right track. I just don't see it yet. Do you? Well, my concern, to your point, is that so much of the pushback against big government is after the devastation has already happened. And you see this, like, Terry and I love to go speak in, in former Soviet satellite countries because there is a thirst, there is a visceral thirst for freedom in large part because, I mean, it's it's been a little, it's been a few years now, but I still meet people that saw their their uncles or their parents just gunned down by the government. Um, so they, You're they, not speaking figuratively. I'm not speaking figuratively. I'm speaking literally in, in countries like Georgia and Lithuania, and, and, and the list is very yeah. long. Um, we, we, don't, we don't have that sense for how dangerous our government can be in this country because, because we're kind of fat and happy. So the question is, do we have to wait for everything to get so bad that people rise up? And maybe that's inevitable. I hope it's not. We're trying to skip that part of, of this awful cycle. But to the point of education in particular, um, this, this is sort of the upside of the downside is um, we, we did another documentary called Sick Year instead of Sick Day, and it's about um, five different moms from different walks of life, um, some well-off, some not well-off at all, some homeschoolers, some pod schoolers, some something else kind of schoolers who got so fed up with lockdowns and the system and, and the intransience and uncaring nature of, of the school industrial complex, the government school industrial complex, that they said, you know what, we're going to do it for ourselves. And if you look at the data right now, there's a tremendous revolution going on where where moms and dads are saying, you know what, I get it now. The system doesn't care about my child. I got to do something else. And once one person does it, and once one mom in one community does it and says, hey, let's create a pod, let's do this, let's do that, it makes it safer for other moms who don't ever want to let their children down to take a chance on doing something different. Um, I think that's a beautiful kind of quiet, kind of secret revolution that's happening in this country. And I think it's, it's going to be transformative for education. You guys have really developed a story maker's mentality. One of the stories took place in Colorado. I want you to tell me about it. Yeah. We have, uh, uh, one of my favorite projects was um, a documentary we made about restorative justice called How to Love Your enemy. And it's a story, um, it's funny because we set out to do something on criminal justice reform. And we specifically did that because that's one of those sort of transpartisan issues where you can get um, right, left, center people from all walks of life agreeing that there's a problem, agreeing that the system's broken and agreeing that, you know, mass incarceration and jailing nonviolent offenders, there's, there's a lot of things that bring people together on this. Um, but restorative justice is a step further. And, and in Longmont, Colorado here, there is a wildly successful program that basically replaces the government system with a community-based system. And it's, it's diversion on steroids because the idea is I'm going to take a young person that did something stupid, that did something wrong, that, that even maybe hurt somebody, and I'm going to ask them to take responsibility for what they did to, to, to actually look their victim in the eye, and not only say I'm sorry, but say I want to I want to fix this. And so the process is such that if if a um, victim agrees to do this, and if law enforcement decides that this is a um, case worth pursuing um, restoration on, um, it's quite often the perpetrator that doesn't want to do that process because it's a hell of a lot harder to take responsibility for your actions and go through this impersonal process and you lie your way through it, everybody denies, denies, denies. Um, and then if they go to prison, then they never really get out again. They get in that cycle of, give me of an criminal example. behavior. Give me, give me an example where this works. Give me, give me a person. So um, it is described in the documentary, a young man breaks into um, somebody's house and he steals stuff. And they very quickly figured out who it was. It was, it was a kid from a broken family. And um, what would typically happen with that young man is he would go to court and he would be convicted and he would have a record at that point. Maybe he spends time in jail. 
with hardened criminals and it gets corrupted by that process. But what they did in this case is everyone agreed that they were gonna go through a restorative justice program instead. And people of the community volunteered to be part of this. Um, and it's, it's kind of, a, it's, it's a process where everybody gets to talk, everybody listens. And if that, well, in this case, it's not an if, that young man decided to take responsibility. And so he, he wrote, he, he was given a contract. You have to do this, 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 and this. And if you do all these things, we're gonna give you a second chance. Um, the, going back to the numbers, recidivism in this program is almost zero. What were the things he had to do? Um, community service type stuff. Um, I, don't, I don't remember what, what, I mean, like, What did he have to do for the family? I mean, um, you broke into my house. Well, the, here's the problem. Kid has no money. Um, he can't repay what he did. So that's part of, part of the problem is like financial restitution is not likely going to be part of the solution. Um, but if you talk to someone who's been robbed or, or physically harmed, I have friends like this, and they went, they went through the, the normal um, jury process, you don't feel whole. You, if anything, you feel alienated even more right. from what happened. So the, the, I think the most important thing is not the list of things you do in, that are defined in that contract. It's your willingness to have the guts to look your victim in the eye and say, I'm sorry. That's the power in it. And it, it's so different. I should, I should say this, like a lot of progressive communities, progressive mayors, I'm thinking of the mayor of Portland. Oh, you can think about the mayor Oregon, here or the Denver, mayor here. Where crime is all over and there is no justice. Yeah. And it's, and they talk about, they just let people out of jail. There right. is no jail anymore. Catch and release or not even catch is That's not restorative we justice. We, we have tickets. It's Steal a car, opposite. here's your citation, yeah. see you never. Yeah. And that's the, um, you know, my, my friends who, who ran the Longmont program, um, I think she would admit that she's a lot more progressive than I am. Um, she's very frustrated with the talking point, restorative justice. Yeah. Because As am it, I. Because it's BS. Because the real process is, is quite rigorous. Um, the real process, and this, this was, you know, our, our documentary features the, the police of, uh, the chief of police and the head of the nonprofit, and they have collaborated on this. And it's, it's tough love. This is not, this is not a hug. This is, this is real restoration. And, and as I mentioned, their, their batting record is almost a thousand. I, I don't, I don't remember what the, the national recidivism rate is, but it's insanely high. Once you're in the system, you don't get out. And what they've discovered is by doing it this way, by involving the community and, and, and essentially getting the government out of the process, that people that are that skin in the game, um, you eliminate Although the problem. Although it is somewhat self-selecting. That is, you have a young kid and this kid doesn't want to go to jail. And he, and he wants somewhere deep inside he must want to look at the victim and say, I'm sorry. He knows what he did was wrong. Right. There is something different about that kid. There's something different about that individual. Yeah. It's the same way to bring it back to the lockdowns. When, when people were finally able to go back to work somewhat, I would ask waiters or waitresses, you know, they're all masked up and they're in their biohazard outfits, and I would say, why are you here? You know, you're giving me a hamburger, but you could be back at home collecting just as much on, on welfare. They, they were still handing out checks left and right of made up money. And I got one of two answers. Yeah. I got a lot of, I just had to get out. I couldn't watch my boyfriend play Xbox anymore. I was gonna strangle him, I needed to get out. And then I would get a lot of this, it just, felt wrong. Yeah. I couldn't put it into words. They would say, it just felt so wrong. I would get a check and I wasn't, it just, it didn't feel right. Yeah. And I needed to go to work. Yeah. And those were the people who said, something for nothing is against my programming. The most dangerous thing about the lockdown world was not just the, the crazy acceptance 
to, to, to being controlled. You will assimilate, and people just did what they said. That surprised me. I never thought it was in the American character yeah. to be told, you will not speak back. Uh, we are closing down your right to assemble, your right to worship, and you will just be controlled. And people went, okay. Including a lot of social conservatives who want law and order and said, okay, yeah. you know, we'll just, you want to strap me down and, and put, put drugs in my system? Okay, everybody should get strapped down and, and against their will have it. The other one that got me was this, this addiction to welfare that this put forward. And I wonder in my deep, dark recesses of, oh, that's it. This was a socialistic ploy to get people on the dole. Yeah. And ever since, that, that love of work, that I earned that money, and now what I own, I own, instead of I have a right for you to work and me to live off of your sweat. Those are the tensions, right? So, like this was this was very much a, a universal basic income type ploy, where we sent people checks to stay home, and if you wanted to, you could milk that system for quite a while. But there's this other thing, and this is what we have to tap into into human nature. But part of us wants to be comfortable and taken care of, and we don't want any scary things, and we don't want any risk, and and we fall for these false promises. If you just stay home and we take care of you, everything's going to be fine. The opposite is how we find purpose and meaning in our lives. And, and even AOC talks about dignity, right? And she's, in some ways, she's right about something. I think the people that showed up to work, even when they didn't have to, were not just tired of sitting at home. It wasn't just that it didn't feel right to take a free lunch. It's like, I, I need to do something with my life. And that, that there's dignity in work. There's, there's, there's something beautiful about, about solving problems, even if the problem is your omelet wasn't right. right. I, I think I, I used to work in fast food, and I still cared that the food was as good as it could be. And, and I've always had that in my system, and it, if, if I'm not doing something, I need, I need to do something useful. Um, I still think that's an American thing. I think, I think we did a lot of damage to that, and I don't think it's a, an accident that, that addiction and suicide and all sorts of horrible uh, social consequences of lockdowns happened. I'll put because, school shootings yes. up there as well, because when you lock up kids and take them away from the socialization they need and being with other kids and being around adults who can see that they're having difficulties, yeah, they go crazy. Yeah, yeah. It, it, it's not a surprise what's going on. It's not surprising that suicides are exploding. None of this is a surprise. Inflation is not a surprise. When you double the money supply, inflation is bound to happen. None of this is a surprise. Again, if you just do simple math, inflation is going to follow when you double the money supply. There's no other way for this to end. It's not that difficult. Um, the, the, the moral side of this is what really got me. The moral side of making people addicted, the first ones free. The socially conservative part of the law and order part really was what got me. Um, the, hey, the government knows what's doing. So when this was happening, uh, we stayed open at, the, at Independence Institute. We're doing what we're doing. We're a media outlet. We have a news site. We do the shows. We do radio. We do all this stuff. And I was looking at this, and they're closing down churches. So I called up a colleague at Colorado ACLU. I said to her, we should do something together. Let's do something together. And she's like, what do you mean? I said, well, come on. You're, they're, they're attacking both of us. What a great statement for independence and ACLU to say this is wrong. You know, they're, they're closing down the uh, right to, to freely assemble. They're closing down churches. They're closing down mosques. And you love the Muslims. And so, yeah. and so we should do something together to say that this is wrong and we won't stand for it. And the response she gave me was, well, right now, we're just following the science. Hmm. And it blew my mind. The the idea that even the ACLU 
would put the, se- the First Amendment on hold because of what Fauci is saying, that one of the most principled organizations, or so I thought, would say, well, you know, what we believe in is yeah. second only to, to, to what the bureaucrats say. And I, I didn't know what to make of that. And after that, I realized when people are scared, I finally figured out why people, when scared, will shove other people into cattle cars. Yeah, yeah. There's a religiosity to it as well, where we suspended our ability to, to think rationally. I think specifically about the ACLU, their entire purpose is to, to defend civil liberties, and they, and they very much have backed off on this. I don't know if there's any bringing them back, to be honest with you, but the one of the things, and I'll dork out here for just a second, one of the things that I reread, I reread a book by um, Frederick Hayek, um, we always drink when we say Frederick Hayek, the patron saint of something. Everything. Yeah, everything. Um, what happens if you say von Mises? Do you just like... Well, then you chug. Oh, okay. Yeah. But uh, Hayek wrote a, a very obscure book called The Counter-Revolution of Science. And when he was um, in the throes of, of critiquing Keynesianism and, and manipulative uh, monetary policy and spending money you don't have... So the three people who were watching us have now yeah, switched to something else. They're gone. Yeah, they're, they're gone. gone. Thank you. Thank you for doing that. I'm, I'm bringing this back somehow. Um, he ultimately tried to figure out what it was about central planners that they were getting wrong, and that this is where his whole critique of socialism came from, that you, you can't rationally plan things from the top down because nobody knows enough. It's the process itself. It's the, the marketplace where you and your neighbor are trying to figure stuff out that matters, and he traces it back to the founding father of socialism, a guy named Henry Saint-Simon. And he had this idea. So tell me if this sounds familiar. He had this idea of replacing the chaos of the market with the top scientists and putting them on a council. And they were going to mandate everything from the top down because people were just too stupid to do it for themselves. And I'm like, that's Anthony Fauci. We've, we've replaced... Um, um, the, the distributed process of people figuring stuff out, like their risk preferences, like what to do about a novel virus that, that we know nothing about. And they gave all that power to a guy. And that guy got it wrong every step of the way. This, this is why we don't like central planning, because um, we couldn't possibly know enough. The smartest guy, and I'm not saying that Fauci is the smartest guy, um, but the smartest guy in the world couldn't possibly have known how to respond to something that we didn't know anything about. But if you're trying to protect your grandparents or you're wanting your, your son to get the best education he can, I'm thinking you know more than they do. And that, and that was the basis of this. But, you know, the science is a religion. And, and that, that first socialist actually said, um, we're going to create temples to Sir Isaac Newton where this scientific uh, thing presides. And all of, all of the plebes, all of the people would have to uh, make a pil- pilgrimage to the Temple of Newton to worship at the altar of science. When you say something like that, the people who pray at the altar of science look at that and go, oh, when you say parents know, that sounds like religious conservatives. It sounds like people who don't believe in evolution. They don't believe in gravity. They pray to gods. They, they're ignorant. Thank God that there are school boards and enlightened people to save their children from idiots like that. And they're the ones who believe in climate, uh, climate science. They're the ones who believe in these things. Uh, and sometimes, you know, they're going to be proven wrong. Uh, the, the idea of um, the earth is going to run out of, of minerals or, mm-hmm. or oil or what, whatever it is, uh, you know, that, that acid rain is going to kill us or the earth is freezing. No, it's warming. No, it's freezing. No, it's warming. Chocolate's good for you. Chocolate's bad for you. Eggs are good. Eggs are bad. You know, science is not settled. But they look at people who believe in religion as the idiots, but science is fact 
when in fact, science is the opposite of fact. It is always, always changing because it's always argued. Yeah. It's also like, I, I view the, the market process and the scientific process as, as almost identical in the sense that mm. you just, you don't, you don't know what you don't know. And the scientific process is an iterative process of coming up with theories and testable hypotheses um, and taking it to the lab and seeing if it works. But you and taking it out into the marketplace yeah. and seeing if it works. You're just trying to you're trying to figure things out that you don't know. And once you say this is the plan, either in a market or in the science, um, you know, that's the you put the opposite. drug out. And either it solves the problem and people live, or it doesn't solve the problem and people don't live. My favorite photograph is of the 1912, 1914 Tour de France, because it can't be the Tour de France, it has to be Tour de France. And they're all about to take the big last hill, Yeah, all the bicyclists. And each and every one of them has cigarette in their mouth. Yeah, Because the science at the time said that the smoke, the smoke in the tobacco, opens up their airwaves, and they need that airwaves, their airwaves to be open to, to get the oxygen going for the big hill. So they're all taking the big hill because that's the science, and that was the science. What was it? Was it kinesiology or whatever it was that you're, they're feeling people's skulls yeah. because that's how they could tell the science of you know, and that was the science of the time, and that was as hardcore science. And today's science, well, that's science today. Um, but by the way, it's, it's it's probably also the the crony capital capitalist capture of of government health agencies, and we see this a lot in the food pyramid, um, captured <laughs> captured by by big sugar and processed foods. I'm going to venture a guess that tobacco companies had, had somehow captured our health institutions and said, "Yeah, sure, smoke while you're riding a bike up up the largest mountain in France." Ever um, remember those Winston uh, ads? Four out of five doctors recommend right. Winston. You know, another thing I, I realized, and this this is a nice segue to something I definitely want to talk about. One of the things I realized um, in 2020 was that at the height of the Hong Kong flu, which which came through San Francisco as seventies in, in early seventies, wasn't it? Uh, late sixties. Okay, um, that's close. Uh, 68. When was Woodstock? It's relevant to the story. 69. 69. Um, How so, do you not know that? I, I used to respect you. Because I'm not nearly as old as you are. That's fair why. point. Um, so soldiers coming back from Vietnam, they, they bring this, this flu back. Uh, San Francisco is ground zero. Um, and, and this was pointed out by my friend Jeffrey Tucker. He wrote a, a great article saying, you know, Woodstock happened in the middle of a pandemic. We didn't lock down the concerts. And then I got curious about it um, because I, of course, love the Grateful Dead. The Grateful Dead played a series of shows in the Bay Area at the height of the Hong Kong flu in San Francisco, ground zero. You know who else played throughout this, the pandemic? Led Zeppelin, Rolling Stones. So for some reason, we didn't say people can't gather. Um, some, for some reason, the world just went on. And and everything was okay. This time we did something every different. Every other epidemic until this one, we did what Sweden did. We quarantined those who were vulnerable. In this one, and I really wondered if it was because of a very, very important presidential election, that we decided to shut down the entire country, the entire world. It, it, it was... It was madness, absolute madness. I want to go back to the Grateful Dead. You came out here a few weeks back, you had to see the dead. You're a deadhead. It fascinates me, the crossover on music. Yeah. That particularly for us old guys, not the youngins who don't understand what music is, the crossover on music. Stay with me on this one. That, you know, for me, growing up in the 70s, this is one of the few things that people my age all have in common. It's really stupid. I get it. But you say, beat me up, Scotty, to any 60-year-old, they know what it means. Yep. Um, uh, you play some classic rock and roll, people our age know what it is. 
And now with 5,000 channels of everything, yeah, it's over. If I were to say to you, Lucille Ball, conveyor belt, chocolates, we all know what it is. And music is kind of one of those things that it was a common underlying cultural factor. We have very few of those today. Maybe the Super Bowl. Maybe. Yeah. What is it about the dead, especially I think the dead, but a lot of classic rock and roll that has this Venn diagram that overlaps hippie communists, and I do mean communists, with hardcore Ayn Rand libertarian Hayekians like you. I mean, I think about Dave Koppel in our shop, also dead head. I think about hardcore social cons like um, Ann Coulter. Ann Coulter, yeah. Deadhead. Why? Tucker Carlson. Really? Huge deadhead. I don't know if he'll admit this anymore, but um, back in the day you'd go to his office and he has dead posters everywhere. And uh, I... I think there's something to I it. Think, in, I think uh, you know, Grover Norquist uh, would yeah, always Gro- go to... Grover's he, a deadhead. Yeah, go, uh, I know a lot of, of uh, libertarians, hardcore libertarians, go to Burning Man. Yeah. Por qué? Explain this one to me. Well, I, I, first of all, why I love the dead. The first time I went to it, I, I always listened to the dead. I didn't go to a dead show until the 1980s. And there's something called Shakedown Street, which is a spontaneous marketplace that emerges in the parking lot and it is a for, for tr- deadheads were the people who followed the yeah. dead. It wasn't just I'm a fan. They would follow. You and, go to all the shows right. if if you can. And in order to afford it, you'd sell crap. You yeah. sell the bootlegs of the show you went to the nights before. Tie dye T-shirts, grilled yeah. cheese sandwiches, possibly right. other things they sell as well. Um, other possibly things. Other things. Other things. Um, but it's slow, uh, slow yeah. drugs. Right. Yeah. Particularly. Back when weed was illegal, right? Um, it, there was that was the best place to get that. But what's interesting about it is, is there's there's no rules um, in the in the in the form of of laws enforcement, but there is an accepted way of behaving in in this community that you're part of. And what I discovered very early on is that deadheads want and respect and cherish their community, so they'll enforce. Um, discipline. They help each other out. If somebody acts badly, um, they get kicked out of the community. Um, so there's uh, How you, so? you mentioned what what they do in particular is um, when law enforcement is coming, they tell each other, and it'll ripple down there because they're 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 technically selling illegally, right? You're not allowed to vent. No t-shirts. permits. There's no. Well, there is now. Now everything's legal, uh, and it's sort bad. of sad. But, but it's sort of sad. <laughs> back in the day, because because everything's licensed and and it's it's very professional. It's not what it used to be because it's not just kids making tie dyes and selling them in the gray market in the parking lot. So they would take care of each other, and if someone stole something, they would they would shout that out. You never saw it because of that. But if, if the cops were coming to seize your stuff, they would, they would let people know and, and wander it down. And in that sense, it was a, it was a spontaneous order in the sense of Hayek. Um, and they very much embraced this, this sense of community and purpose, and, and they cherished the brand of the community. And I'm like, this is how a market worked. This is how a free community would actually spontane- function. And for those who don't know a couple things, spontaneous order, what Hayek always said, if you leave people alone, you don't need commanding authorities from above to create order, it happens spontaneously. That's what, so what you're yeah. saying. Also, it's interesting that the dead themselves did not enforce, you can't record our shows, which you can't stop now, thanks to iPhones. Yeah. But back then, I remember going to a dead show, and I never, I never got the dead. It just it wasn't, my, wasn't my scene. The music just was, groove music wasn't my thing. But I remember sitting out there at a dead show, and people are got tripods and towers of, of uh, sensitive microphones pointing in different Profes- directions. Professional equipment. It was professional bootlegs. Yeah. And they were there because they were going to sell their bootlegs. And it was like, although they weren't going to sell them in mass, uh, but they would sell them in the parking lot. They actually didn't sell them. They traded them. 
And this, this this was part of the part of the ethos. The, the dead said, "You're welcome to record this," as Jerry famously said. Once I'm done playing, I'm done with that music. Do what you want with it. But it was a it was a process of people would trade cassette tapes back and forth, yeah. and and obviously the the people that are recording the shows they're they're obsessive collectors and they would have all the shows. Um, but there's there's a couple great books on this about about the marketing genius of the Grateful Dead. Great book. I recommend everyone. Everything I learned about business, I learned from the dead. And this was sort Think of about that title. This was guerrilla marketing because they they didn't have radio play. And there's there's something about a twenty minute dark star that just doesn't is not made for AM radio back in the day. But they would trade tapes, and and that was another way that they respected their community. They would let this parking lot scene go on that was selling Grateful Dead type stuff. And they and they wouldn't they wouldn't crack down and enforce that as well, and in the process, they created a huge brand, a market brand for themselves. And at the, you know, at the end of the road for Jerry Garcia in the 1990s, the Grateful Dead was one of the top grossing bands in the world. And fast forward to the shows that I just saw in Colorado, um, it's 25, 30 years after Jerry died. Jerry died in 1995, I think. Something like that. So, so do the math for me. It's been a while. I mean, I live in Boulder. You might as well. It's like JFK dying. Right. It was. It was. It was devastating. Yeah. Devastating to me. We we shut the office that day. But um, the brand that they created has outlived the creator, and I think that's that's an interesting lesson. I I apply this to what we do at Free the People. I want to create a community. I want to create a sense of belonging. I want to create a, a cool brand that you want to wear on your T-shirt and not just not just those weird books that I read when I was a kid. So help me, let's, let's wrap it up with this. Help me understand, here's Shakedown Street. Here's these people living spontaneous order. They are trading. They're living their own lives. They are creating things that didn't exist before, whether it's a tie-dyed shirt or a different mixtape that didn't exist yesterday. And they're turning it into value. They're turning what they made into food so they, they and their family can eat. And they're living their lives. They're, they are pursuing their happiness. Yet, if you follow them into a voting booth, I guarantee you 90% of them were voting like communists. Yeah. Explain. I'd, explain me, Lucy. So I'm going to explain. explain it to, I'm going to explain it to you a, a slightly different way. I don't think the people you just described participate in politics. I think they're what uh, dorky libertarians would call agorists. Um, they're living their lives. They're living their lives freely. They probably don't know who the president is. If they do, it's an unfortunate accident in their lives. They would never dream of going into a phone booth because they're just pursuing their dreams and living their lives. Now, maybe that's a naive attitude. Maybe we can't ignore politics. But, but I would retort this. They are cultural influencers. Yes. They're the ones who put the music forward. They're the ones who fill up, that made uh, Folsom Field fill up. They're the ones who have now taken the dead music into then college radio stations and then mainstream radio stations and now satellite and um, Spotify. And because of that, I would suspect most deadheads, most dead fans, are the ones who are voting for socialized medicine or politicians who socialize it and government-controlled education and lockdowns and the rest. Well, we know and, that's where Bobby was. Yeah. The head Bobby, of the band. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, Jerry's still head of the band. But it yeah, doesn't sure. matter. My point being, the culture of all this yeah. is still working against us. In the same way, I look at guys who made their money in oil and gas or made their fortune in capitalism, but still because for some god-awful reason they, they, love their, they love their alma mater and they put their name on a building back at CU or CSU or name whatever school. And I'm thinking, you're, you're funding the people who are destroying what made you wealthy. You are destroying the country that gave you the opportunity to be who you are. And I don't understand it. And so, yes, I agree with everything you said. 
I look at rich people today, or I look at the people who are taking away our guns and taking away our gas stoves and taking away our freedom of speech with cancel culture and putting in speech codes and in universities, I realize they're only able to do this because they've had fat, dumb, happy lives. If you're our age or younger, you've never known real inflation, a hard time, depression, war, famine, anything. And it's only because of capitalism. And so now you can care about silly things and you're going to destroy what made you have this first in human history life. And you're going to destroy it because you're stupid. I got, I got nothing. I, <laughs> I, I think this is the dilemma of, of free market capitalism. Is, is, is it, it creates a, its own downfall? It creates a very wealthy, happy set of people who don't appreciate where that wealth and happiness came from. And um, I take it even a step further. I mentioned AOC, and, and I do think there's a, there's, a, there's a sort of philosophical, moral, personal crisis going on in most Americans today, where they don't worry about whether or not they're going to be able to feed their families. Yeah. That, that was their purpose for thousands of years. Can we survive the winter? We don't, we don't worry about these things anymore. So your purpose was defined, your meaning was defined, and now we got to find purpose and meaning in something else. And we're struggling to figure out what that is. I think that's the, that's the battle we have to fight. It's not just about the budget, it's not just about um, tax rates anymore. It's about where will Americans find meaning and purpose in the future and being fat and happy and locked down in your pajamas on Zoom. And that's, Netflix. That's not meaning. And I, I think- That's a drug. Yeah. Netflix is the drug and fiat currency is the enabler. Yeah. yeah. People want to, people need to, be part of Free the People. Where do they go? What do they do? Freethepeople.org. Um, we're on all social media. And uh, you can watch um, a lot of our documentaries and the various programs that we produce um, on our YouTube channel, um, as long as we don't get erased from YouTube, but it hasn't happened yet. And also, I have a show on Blaze TV called Kibbe on Liberty. And if um, the social censors manage to wipe everything else out, you can go to Blaze TV and watch that show because it is not subject to censorship. It's censorship. also fun. It's not it's not not a huge time commitment. It's just fun. It's liberty should be fun. And there's booze. And there's booze. Lots of booze. Matt, as always, thank you much. Thank you, sir. Cheers. Cheers. If you've enjoyed this episode of Devil's Advocate, I hope you'll share it with a friend. And I hope you'll subscribe and follow the show. We have new ones released weekly. Remember, this audio was taken from our TV show. To watch it, just search the letters IITV for Independence Institute TV on YouTube for this and many other great conversations.